Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to uh, another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to just think. We want to think with particular virtues in mind. So we're endeavoring to cultivate things like curiosity, charity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So a, a lot of that really kind of boils down to what we think of as James 3 and the meekness of wisdom that comes from above. So it's not this like really arrogant, proud, over-the-top, heavy-handed sort of uh, thinking. It's a thinking that is open to reason, that's careful, that's kind, that's gentle. All the sort of instructions that we find in the scriptures for how we should think and treat other people. So we're, we're trying to do that. We're not always perfect, but hopefully we can embody that in all that we do. So maybe it encourages you as you do this. Now, this episode, I'm really looking forward to it. So it, it is technically a special episode of the Hanover House, which usually we've got a couple other guys. But today we have Connor McMakin with us as well, who's a pastor in Michigan. I think he's going to be able to provide some good questions and insight to uh, this. We're going to talk about the title of the book is Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith by Dr. Guillaume Bagnon. I think the book is awesome. And I think it's probably especially good for a lot of your churches. So I know you're always looking for good books to, to have on hand to do book studies or to do, do different resource giveaways. I think you guys would find this one really valuable. Obviously, I think it's, I'm, it's a little bit of a play on Augustine with confessions. And then, you know, there's a lot of, been a lot of confessions of a blank. So I, I like the title personally. So I'm excited to discuss with you. Uh, Guillaume about the book. So wh- why don't we, before we just get started, let's give me just what is it that led you to write this book? I mean, you've got a, you have an a- academic monograph on free will and, and determinism and, and the problem of evil. And now you're writing a popular level book on confessions of a French atheist. What, what made you do that? Hey, Jordan. Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose that's a very different style indeed. Uh, and maybe if Bart Ehrman were given my two books, he would conclude that they were not written by the same author. Uh, so <laughs> that's a different topic, different style. Uh, I mean, for, for some of it, it's a different language. Uh, but yeah, the, somehow it's the same author. Uh, so the, the reason for writing this one uh, is that I just, I mean, I have... Um, become a Christian, obviously, <laughs> that's the whole premise of the, the book. Uh, and I wanted to give an account for a, a couple of reasons why I, th- I think that my story is fairly entertaining. So I think that uh, people will enjoy reading about the story of this French atheist who really couldn't stand religion and somehow through some weirdly improbable circumstances finds himself to be not just a Christian, but actually an engaged uh, academic in the field. Um, and then uh, obviously there's apologetic value. Uh, so, I mean, I, I am at heart an evangelist uh, as well as a, as a Christian uh, thinker and I want people to uh, be an, encountering a compelling account of uh, a, a sensible person coming to faith uh, explaining what happened to him and uh, so it's somewhat of a personal justification uh, some, so to, to pick up on the word confession there's there's some of that so I, I don't give you a idealized version of myself I, there are some pretty solid details and I, I confess some things that I did wrong, uh, but uh, there's also some really positive aspect of God redeeming all of that. And it's a, a compelling story that I wanted to tell the world to say, hey, if this happened to me, uh, maybe it can happen to someone else. As we were uh, discussing before we started recording, uh, you know, we wouldn't have time for you to actually go through the whole journey 
uh, of your conversion. But I wonder if maybe you could take seven or eight minutes um, and give us uh, a summary version of what it is that happened. One of the things when I was looking through your book uh, that was most interesting to me was your first experience in a church uh, and kind of how that went for you. Uh, that really stood out to me. So if, if you don't mind, maybe include that in the summary. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in France. Uh, I had somewhat of a, a, a degree of a, a Catholic background, uh, but that faded very fast as I grew up uh, and realized I didn't really believe any of this. I uh, told my parents this was the case and just stopped uh, engaging in you know mass and other practices and just lived my life as an atheist uh, and seeking my own happiness in all sorts of avenues. So I was uh, playing sports, I ended up playing volleyball in National League, so I was traveling around the country to uh, play volleyball games and having lots of fun there. Uh, I studied engineering, physics, uh, math, uh, and uh, ended up being a, a, a software engineer. Uh, that was for my income and uh, figured this would provide well for a life uh, of uh, seeking happiness. Um, and then, uh, let's see, I was playing uh, music as well and ended up playing in a band, uh, trying to record music, uh, playing concerts. So again, seeking my own uh, fun in, in those avenues. And finally, uh, at, uh, as a young uh, adult, uh, atheist, French, uh, my age, uh, one of the ideals was also the uh, pursuit of women. And I started to have enough success there as well. So the, all, overall, that was the context in which uh, I had rejected religion and was seeking my own happiness in other avenues and hoping very much that the topic of religion would never come back. And the way that it came back against my will is that uh, I went on vacation uh, in the Caribbean with my brother. Uh, and so again, random circumstances, we ended up hitchhiking our way home over there, uh, like to, to our apartment uh, in uh, in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And uh, the car that stopped were a couple of American tourists uh, who were very attractive. One of them was a former model. And so immediately we tried to uh, like connect and uh, try to see them again. Uh, again, I'm skipping through some of the details. We end up uh, uh, together. I ended up dating this uh, woman uh, who was from New York. Uh, and who also informed me that she was a Christian, which was extremely problematic because I thought that belief in God was insane. And so that uh, not only there was that problematic belief that religion was in the middle, but uh, as connected to that, she also believed that sex only belonged in marriage, which was also very problematic to me. And so my quest, uh, you know, began as a desire to explain to her why all of this is nonsense and why we should be together and not worry about religion or God or any such uh, views of moralities. And um, that's how I ended up uh, just looking into some of the claims of Christianity, if I was going to refute that, if I needed to understand what she actually believed and what she practiced. And this is how I found my way to a church in Paris that I had good reason to believe uh, engaged in the same sort of uh, uh, faith and practices that she did. Uh, and uh, that I visited this church as, a, as an atheist, uh, trying to understand what's going on. And uh, this uh, visit is where I had a, a very strange experience again, uh, where I sat down, uh, discovered a little bit what, what what those Christians do when they get together. And at the end of the service, uh, I, mean, I felt awkward all throughout because I thought if anybody could see me in that church, I would die of shame. 
And uh, when at the end of the service, I tried to uh, escape because I thought I've seen what I needed to see. Uh, let me make sure that nobody uh, connects with me so that I don't have to introduce myself to those weirdos. And so I tried to escape the church uh, and I walked all the way to the back, opened the door to leave. And I literally had one foot out the door when there's a big blast of chills that came in my stomach that went up in my chest and grabbed me by the throat. And I was frozen on the doorstep. Uh, and so that's how I just froze, uh, heard myself thinking, this is ridiculous. I have to figure this out. And I uh, closed the door and turned around and I went straight to the head pastor and I uh, introduced myself and say, so <laughs> you believe in God, huh? <laughs> and so he looked at me and said, well, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, how does this work out? I, I want to understand. And so we made an appointment and I went to see him in his office uh, a couple of days later. And that started a whole uh, range of conversations, a series of meetings of me coming to his office and just chatting about his uh, religious faith. Uh, you know, his belief in God and uh, experience of uh, the Christian faith, the miracles, uh, the Bible, uh, and you know his view of marriage and all sorts of issues uh, connected to that. And that uh, that long uh, series of exchanges definitely affected my thinking. Uh, there was a number of points on which I was challenged intellectually and in practice, just encountering this guy who was intelligent, who wasn't uh, clearly emotionally unstable, uh, that was breaking some of the cliches I had against Christians. And throughout this process of changing my mind and discovering some things that I must have been wrong on, uh, I came to discover the gospel as well. And so again, I'll, I'll skip the details and uh, point the, the, uh, the listeners to the book, uh, explaining all the, the, the stories and the hoops that I jumped through. Um, and then uh, ended up being uh, simply compelled by the gospel. I accepted it. And in the, in the process, ended up also moving to the U.S. So here again, the fun stories of how all of that panned out. Uh, and then years later, here I am in the U.S. Uh, I'm uh, still still working as a software engineer, a manager now, uh, but I'm also a Christian academic. I went to seminary, uh, got a master's in New Testament studies, a PhD in philosophical theology. And it, here is me writing books about this. So the very reluctant convert uh, and uh, a fun story to explain how the, I went from this uh, resentment against God and anything religious to being very passionate about the truth of the gospel. And I think you do have a very unique story. I mean, just across the board, I mean, I think all aspects of it are fascinating too. So I think those who are reading the book, you just enjoy it. I mean, it really is enjoyable to read that. And you've got some, I think what what's really unique about your book is it's not just the story of your conversion, but you deal with some important Aspects. So you've got chapters on intellectual barriers, on miracles, if that's history or mythology. You've got stuff on moves and debates, on discovering apologetics. So maybe one of those things you can talk to me a little bit about is these these intellectual barriers for you. Explain to me. I mean, you, you don't have to obviously give me the whole uh, explanation for every single intellectual barrier you had, but for you personally, when you're an atheist. What were the key intellectual barriers for you to Christianity? Yeah, I, I'm very happy to share that. I'll put the disclaimer that uh, if an atheist is listening to the story here, this is not necessarily a list of the strongest arguments in favor of atheism, because my atheism was not necessarily academically educated at the time either. Uh, so I, I don't, don't mean to say, oh, here, 
here's everything there is about atheism. That's not my point. But biographically speaking, here are some of the sticking points I had in my mind and that I needed to resolve as part of my conversion story. Um, so one of them was that I was quite convinced at that time that you just needed to be absolutely dumb to believe in the supernatural. Like the, the, the social environment in which I was evolving in France uh, was very much encouraging me to see things like that. That religion is just superstition and people who do that just don't have the brain power to uh, believe anything else. Um, so that was one piece that needed to be challenged and that was successfully challenged when I met this pastor who was clearly not out of his mind and yet he believed that there is such a thing as a supernatural God who created the universe and that Jesus was raised from the dead. So that, that was one big piece that, that I needed to accept that people can be smart and believe in the supernatural and it's not uh, entirely incompatible. Uh, another piece that I was uh, that was importantly shifted in my mind is uh, the view of uh, Christian ethics, particularly sexual ethics. So at the time, I was very convinced that the Christian faith uh, forced you to like, was very repressive in terms of uh, sexual uh, sexual practice. That uh, the, this idea that you needed to uh, wait for marriage uh, that was old fashioned uh, repressive, and also there was the the question of whether a Christian should be able to marry uh, an atheist, right? So to to me. I was an atheist and uh, my girlfriend was a Christian and it seemed like her idea that I should be a Christian if we were to ever get married was intolerant. That's how I perceived it. So that's another intellectual piece that shifted in my conversations with that pastor. I came to appreciate that this is not just intolerance. It's actually making good sense that if the most important thing in your life is God and it's at the center of every major decision that you're going to make, then to be married with a person who thinks not only this is false, but it's actually laughing ridiculous and there's no successful marriage to be had here so uh, that that was kind of the practical aspects came a little bit too, too light and uh, also he was able to paint a surprisingly attractive picture of his uh, christian view on uh, relationships uh, obviously i was nowhere near prepared to accept abstinence before marriage but at the time i was also very much i had made a series of very wrong choices in my own romantic life i had treated women abominably i had cheated on every single girlfriend i ever had and uh, caused tons of pain cause, uh, had to lie about this all over the place so i was at a position where I was actually uh, surprisingly open to considering that a more conservative view of relationships could be appealing in some respect. Um, and he painted a, a very attractive picture. I mean, he even told me that he somehow hadn't kissed his wife until they got married, which to me was absolute madness. But there was something uh, sweet about this, the idea that uh, somehow they kissed uh, after the, the traditional formula, you know, like you may kiss the bride. Oh, and this is the, their first kiss. Obviously, I thought never for me, but there was something appealing there. So uh, through those conversations, I, I kind of diffused my uh, my ob objections against uh, the Christian view of relationships. Uh, a third point uh, intellectually that I, I needed to wrestle with was my uh, view of the place of science in all of this. Uh, I, I came to, I, I was convinced, uh, as is a common belief, that somehow science is at open war with the idea that God exists. And so I was convinced this was just common sense, that yes, you are either believe in science or believe in God. And uh, a bit of reflection upon my own scientific knowledge uh, quickly led me to realize there was nothing that I knew from my studies in science that were directly in conflict with the idea that God exists. Uh, so that I didn't have any positive scientific belief in conflict with God's existence. 
And then I also realized uh, that maybe I expected, okay, well, perhaps, but if you're going to believe in God, then you need to have positive scientific evidence for God's existence. And here, a little bit of reflection also allowed me to realize uh, there's plenty of things that we know uh, that are not uh, supported by scientific evidence. Right? Science is one wonderful way, one wonderful source of knowledge. But I realized there are plenty of things that I know that are not scientifically supported, and yet I'm fully rational in believing. So a bit of reflection on on what what it takes to know something, uh, and it's something that also came uh, came uh, when I. Uh, tackled that final barrier, which was how could I know that uh, what that what the Bible tells me about Jesus is true? Um, I, I came to realize I, I really wanted to to uh, appreciate that if I were going to become a Christian, I wanted to have more than just a blind faith. Like this, this was not going to cut it for me. I wanted to be quite confident, uh, and I wanted to to know that this is true. And to me at the time, uh, I had expectations of kind of certainty. Like if you're going to know that it's true, you, you need to be certain. And um, I realized that this standard was completely unrealistic and that there's actually plenty of things that we know quite reliably, right? Knowledge, not, not just belief or, or tentative, like a guess, gamble. No, things that we actually know, even though we don't have absolute certainty. And I, I put that uh, discovery simply under the banner of... Like, uh, testimony that it, there's plenty of things that we know by testimony that because somebody we knew told us and now we know you know there's some some beautiful simplicity to this like somebody knows something and they tell me and now I know and that I, I realize is actually quite true for a lot of things that are quite important to us like my date of birth my name who are my parents you know these are all things that I know because somebody we knew told me and I realized that if I can acquire knowledge about some of those things in the world, then perhaps I could have similarly respectable knowledge of not just belief uh, about what happened to Jesus, who he was, and the truth of the uh, teachings of the New Testament. And that's how I came to appreciate the, the testimony of the evangelists. You know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came to me as four different people who were telling me, hey, this is what we've seen. This is what this guy Jesus did. And this is what he said. And we're telling you because we think it's important and we want you to know. And I came to realize, look, there's going to be discussions about whether their testimony is trustworthy, right? We don't want to be just gullible and accept anything that people say just because they say it. But uh, if these sources are trustworthy, then I can know what happened to Jesus simply on the basis that somebody who knew told me. And that's that was a, a very significant intellectual shift. So all of those pieces kind of came together through those conversations and personal reflections, and that made for my intellectual openness to the truth of Christianity. That's good stuff. That's really really helpful. So another question I had: I mean, you being an atheist at the time, when you think about, I mean, at least in America, a lot of churches are they've decided they just want to focus on reaching people who are not Christians. And so they've almost mm -hmm. changed the entire structure of how they do worship. So it's really like, let's get a rock band, let's get a cool TV, um, and do videos and all these sort of things. For you at that time, would would that actually have convinced you of Christianity in any way? I mean, is, is there anything in that sort of methodology that actually would be attractive to you? So I, I, I can... I can't say if the, the, the those features you described, so the, the rock band, the TV, I don't know if they are 
aimed towards convincing anybody of something, uh, I think that they wouldn't have hurt. I mean, the, the band was that uh, at that church when I visited it the first time, right? Uh, it was very awkward to me. It was very strange, very different from the pipe organs of my childhoods. Uh, but uh, the the band was actually a modern band. And there was a part of me that thought, hey, they are playing really well. And I was impressed by their music. Now, not for a second did I think, well, because their music is great, therefore I should become a Christian or therefore, therefore Christianity is true. So none of this contributed to my conversion, but this was appealing enough that, okay, that there's, there's good musicians, it's, it's great, uh, they're they are engaging in this. Uh, I, I can't stand their religious lyrics, but this is this is good stuff. Uh, and uh, as far as the, the the pieces that do that did convince me, so I think to to highlight kind of the point that you're trying to make, which is that the the convincing parts might be in the ordinary and not in the flashbang uh, of the of the rock show. Um, this is very much true in my conversion. I think the the compelling piece that really went straight to my heart was uh, in the very somewhat mundane reading of the New Testament. As an adult, when I finally came to reopen a Bible and figure out who is this Jesus guy that I've been hearing about and what did he, what did he say, there was a freshness to this, to his words and to his actions. Reading the New Testament, I expected it to be just as boring as my childhood uh, memories would have told me. Uh, and, and I discovered a very compelling person who spoke with authority, who navigated conversation like a, a, a genius. He was co confronted by people who were trying to untrap him in his own words, and he would have always the quick comebacks and the witty sayings, the compelling speech. So all of those things uh, were very compelling to me, and the simple reading of that text was very important in my conversion as well, not just intellectually, with all of the various intellectual shifts that I've described to you, but this went to my heart as well, and that connection between the mind and the heart was made through what obviously now as a Christian I interpret as the work of the Spirit, working the truth of the gospel from the mind to the heart. Nevertheless, it seems like a very ordinary mean of grace that I would just read the Bible and be pierced in the heart with the truth of the gospel. That's good. So Brandon and Connor, you guys are both pastors. Are there questions or thoughts that are coming to your mind right now? Um, based on your experience with that pastor that you met with over and over again, what advice uh, would you give to pastors who might be um, meeting with folks like you, or, you know, even in our age of, you know, what we're calling deconstruction, you know, Christians that are, uh, you know, sort of trying to come to terms with their, their own upbringing, or even, you know, considering leaving the faith. So I don't know if those two people are necessarily in the same category, probably not. But um, from, from your perspective, somebody's walked through that, how would you, um, what advice would you give to pastors who might very soon or who are going through that on the other end of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a, a number of things that I think that that pastor did really well uh, that worked out in my case. So uh, to what extent I can generalize and say, well, then if you, do, if you guys do this, uh, that will happen as well. Go and meet all those French atheists and uh, the, you'll make a lot of uh, Christian scholars. Uh, but but yeah, let's, let's look a little bit at some of the things that he did. Uh, I think that's w one positive part is that, again, almost boringly, he pointed me to the Bible. Right? I mean, when I asked him, okay, what is your faith really about? He gave me a booklet that he had written that was asking some of, some questions about the basics of the Christian faith and was just giving you scripture references for you to go and get the answer for yourself. 
And I thought that format was wonderfully helpful because it allowed me to kind of ask the questions for myself, go and figure it out. And I didn't have to take his word for it. Like I could go and see the sources and say, hey, yeah, that's what the, the Christian scriptures are saying. That's really what the answer is. Uh, and obviously, as Christians, we're convinced that reading the word of God is uh, never useless. So there was plenty of opportunity for the spirit to just uh, highlight the, 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 the truth and illuminate, uh, both change my heart and um, bring those truths to life. So that was a, a helpful piece that he did. Another one I would say, obviously, there was the fact that he wasn't crazy. So, so it's, it's fairly low bar to give to pastors. But yeah, don't be crazy. Uh, is, he was a sensible guy who valued education and intellectual engagement. And it was, uh, it was great to exchange with him. And there was value in that for me just to see somebody who believes Christianity and is not uh, an idiot. And the, the third piece that I would say he did really well was um, navigate the uh, disagreement on ethics. So he was clearly in a place where I was uh, very evidently breaching uh, moral standards that he had holds to be true. Um, and he navigated that well, that he didn't pretend like he agreed with my view of morality or that he approved of my choices. And at the same time, he was not accusatory or condemning me. He was very much welcoming, uh, happy to have a conversation with me. And that certainly is a facet of Jesus' ministry that was replicated there and that I would encourage pastors to have, is to be a friend of sinners. Right? Uh, risk being called a sinner because you're friends with them and be such close that you're not compromising about your moral beliefs, not pretending like this is okay or that you approve of it. But as soon as, uh, just as clearly as you disagree with the choices, it should be just as clear that you welcome and want to be friends. And that, that certainly was conveyed in these exchanges. And that was a, a great way to approach that such that I could be confronted by a disagreeing view, that I could be challenged by a, a different standard of morality, but not feel threatened that somehow this guy is just pointing fingers and I mm -hmm. should run away. So I have two questions. Um... The first one is, so after you're converted, you know, you believe the gospel, you believe that the New Testament is, is telling the, tr the truth about Jesus, you believe he's been resurrected. So you, you become a Christian. Were there any uh, particular beliefs or maybe a particular Christian faith practice that was kind of a stumbling block for you? It was something that you were kind of slow to take to. So that's the first question. And the second one is, you know, Jordan mentioned your other book, which is on issues of free will and determinism, but this is still related to uh, your Christian journey. When did you become a Calvinist? Was this something that happened over time or was this like, okay, you opened up your Bible and, you know, you, you, you just kind of jumps out at you and that's just kind of what you would have, you would have, you wouldn't have had that label, but you would have just held those beliefs right from the beginning. Oh, this is good questions. All right. So let, let's tackle the, the first one first. Uh, what, uh, what beliefs or practices, if any, uh, took a while to accept after I, I became a Christian? Um, I don't think there was any major stumbling block once I accepted, uh, the, the, well, obviously the, the truth of the gospel itself, uh, repented of my sins, placed my trust in Jesus. Uh, I, I think the, the hardest pill to swallow in terms of beliefs and practices at the moment of conversion or prior, just prior to it was the view of Christian ethics. Like I said, so to change my view of morality and the sexual practices, um, and then after that, uh, it's it was clear that once I I realized okay God exists this is the biggest news that ever was like this is my my entire worldview was flipped upside down uh, I knew that, that I couldn't just go 
half-hearted into this and that a very significant portion of my life would be dedicated to understanding, supporting, and proclaiming this message. Because I, again, I felt like I've, I had lived 25 years in a place where I was hardly ever challenged by that truth and uh, that you know, people need to be told, right? So obviously it's a bit of a different context in the US I and mean, Christianity still has a pretty strong uh, voice in the culture, even though obviously, you know, the, the advances of secularism or, you know, this, people can debate just how much of a voice we have, but uh, at least there's a basic general understanding that there are people here who believe that Jesus was the son of God, who actually died and rose again. And uh, they have a basic understanding of the gospel, you know, that justification by faith, this is not by good works, but by trusting in Jesus that you uh, obtain forgiveness from God. Uh, I had never heard that message before I was 25. Nothing close to that. And so to me, discovering this was truly shocking. Like we're not saved by our good works. We're like, it's for free. <laughs> when we when you put your faith in Jesus, he just, just gives you eternal life. For, like, and that was shocking, truly shocking. And that message I realized, okay, I'm going to need to proclaim it like to whoever I can explain this. Like y y you don't understand. This is huge. <laughs> this is a big deal. So that was um, like at that point, my conversion, I was all in, I swinged in and it's like, okay, I, I have to tell people and telling people involved also, um, you know, but beefing up on my uh, apologetics so that I could be somewhat convincing. That is not just a crazy man who now has to only show that he's not lost his mind uh, that I know I, I need to show them, okay, I'm still this sensible guy. I am still thinking about what I'm doing, but here, uh, God exists and Jesus was raised from the dead. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> uh, and then the, the, the second uh, question you had was, uh, when did I become a Calvinist? Was this like, like a package deal as well as part of the conversion? Or did this come a, as a progress? Uh, there was It was definitely a process after that. Uh, so, so some reflection on the teachings of the Bible, obviously. Um, you know, like hey, what else is the Calvinist going to say? Yeah, it's in the Bible, obviously. So, uh, reading the Bible, uh, I came to appreciate that there were some strongly Calvinistic teachings. Uh, I mean, some th sat through some preaching that exposes uh, some of that. I didn't buy the entire thing, uh, like wholesale to begin with. Uh, there was some elements, obviously, that resonated even with my own conversion story. I mean, there was a part of me that, having gone through this, where it was so obvious to me the providential hand of God in just grabbing me and breaking down all of my defenses, the, the timing, the uh, improbable coincidences. I mean, the whole thing is, like, you read my book, you read the conversion story, it reeks of God's intervention at every step of the way. So it seemed clear to me that I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't more open to the things of the Spirit. I wasn't like this, this uh, like, okay, God, I, I, want, I want this, I want religion. I hated all of this. And it's really a story of God reaching out for and transforming the heart of somebody who hates him into the heart of somebody who can't get enough of this good news of the gospel. And so if that was the way that I came to Christian faith, there was a strong uh, resonance with what I heard from the Calvinistic view that this is really God who comes down and changes your heart and sovereignly decides that you're going to be a Christian. 
uh, obviously raising all sorts of philosophical questions about you know are you still morally responsible for what you do and what about those that he doesn't save like that so all of those questions that I'm trying to address in my uh, work on the questions of free will but the basic core of it that God chooses who ends up a Christian and changes their heart sovereignly was consistent with my own story and then through reasoning through studying the Bible and uh, then obviously studying quite a bit of philosophy around free will and providence as well uh, those things solidified and I came to have a more a beefy understanding of, of Calvinism and, and defense of the Reformed faith. That's awesome. So I, I am really curious, you still work as in the software development industry. I mean, I, I don't know if it's software development industry, but you do software development as a manager. Um, what do your coworkers think about you and your story? Like what, what's, what comes to their mind when, when you talk about this sort of stuff? I mean, cause I'm, I'm similar. I, I work a normal job. Um, and yet I am an academic with all these sort of things. So I get a, a lot of time to just kind of like talk about this sort of stuff. So I'm just curious what they think about it. Yeah. So that uh, I get very, uh, very surprised looks, uh, for sure. Uh, I think that, uh, I've had different experiences throughout the years. Obviously, they, I come across as a different... Uh, I, at the very beginning, all I was was a, a Christian who spends quite a bit of time outside of work uh, studying those things. And then I was a student in master's and then in uh, in PhD. So that was kind of a different story of like, how, why do you spend all this time studying and that type of thing? Um, so I was also in a different uh, industry. So uh, yes, software engineering, I was an engineer, but I worked on Wall Street for over 15 years. So I was on the trading floor of corporate investment banks. So dealing with traders uh, and that's there was a very like high pace uh high pressure uh, lots of alpha male lots of uh, testosterone on the on the trading floor um so lots of quick wits and uh, and debating and come back so there's been some really fun conversations in that environment um and then uh in a recent uh, time uh, i've uh, moved out of new york uh because i have five young children and that seemed like the sensible thing to do to not stay in new york uh and so moved to virginia and i've uh, taken a job uh, with a California tech startup. So now it's no longer the financial industry. Uh, it's a it's a tech company in uh, in California, and um, there I appear now. I I'm, I come already with the PhD and the books, and uh, so it's kind of the, like oh, who's this guy? Who's a manager? But he's also a published author and he's engaging in debates and uh, radio shows. So they have a little bit of a more complete picture of the kind of work that I do, um, and I have, I get to have some good uh, good. I would say good openness because they come to respect me as a, as a, an engineer before they realize, oh, I also do those things. So they can't really, it's kind of the same position I found myself in discussing with the pastor at the time. I can't really dismiss the person as being intellectually subpar. I have some great deal of respect. And yet here is the kinds of beliefs that they have. And not only that, but they spend quite a bit of time thinking about those beliefs. So I think this is the valuable uh, open door that I have with my coworkers today is that they can respect my work. They can respect my intellect and uh, thoughtfulness about those questions. And they get to see that I have some, some, uh, at least a fun story to tell and some good reasons behind my decision to become a Christian. So um, I'm very hopeful that, 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 the book also helps uh, to convey the, the full the full picture of what happened to me and and what I'm doing. Uh, but certainly over the years with coworkers, I've had plenty of opportunities to share the gospel, uh, to explain some of the good reasons that I have behind uh, my Christian belief, and I've had some uh, very positive results uh, out of that. So, 
if you were to talk to just your regular church members, so they're not that they don't have any interest in being a pastor, they don't have any interest in being an academic, they just want to live a faithful Christian life, work in their wherever they're at. What sort of advice would you give them for interacting with unbelievers like w- w- your former self when you're when you're a French atheist? I mean, what what is it that would be helpful for them to think about and understand when they're interacting with people like that? Um, yeah, I think that's um, some of the same advice that I, I gave in light of the pastor's uh, actions would apply to the regular churchgoers. I think that to not be crazy, uh, to care and point people to the Bible, uh, that's always good practice and that works for a, a non-pastor just as much as, as a pastor. Uh, I think for the individual who doesn't necessarily have the, lots of time to engage in the intellectual research, uh, like the defense of the Christian faith, um, but still wants to be a faithful witness, um, to be able to um, uh, convincingly describe the story of the gospel, you know, what happened to Jesus. Here is basically the outline of the, the message of the gospel. Uh, here is what uh, I've come to embrace, and here is why it's important to me. I think this is a helpful part to, again, so it's not to have it memorized like a mechanical thing, but to just have some degree of fluency in explaining that story. Uh, the, the way I've explained it is that I, I never heard that message myself, and it came so fresh that uh, somebody who can sit, sit down and tell me, here's what we believe, is already very important uh, to for me to even consider that, that uh, Christian claim. And the way that I typically encourage people to do is to say, Let's let's not jump into a debate about whether that's true or not just yet. Let's just put a break on this for just a second. And let me verify that you understand what we believe before we, we talk about why we believe it. Just let me tell you what the Christians actually affirm and then just explain the, the, the gospel. So I've done that a number of times. And uh, the way that I typically see that they catch it is that without fail, the very first thing that comes out of their mouth after that is the very objection that Paul anticipated in um, in the book of Romans, where he says, well, then if we're saved for free like this, then why not go on sinning? And this is very frequently what I'm getting after I've done that, that people say, oh, really? But then well, why don't we just go on and, and continue sinning? And then I get to, to wink and say, ha, okay, good. You're getting it because that's exactly what Paul anticipated when he would preach the gospel. And so obviously then you can explain, okay, why not go on sinning, right? Uh, Paul gives you some uh, equipment to do that. But at least at that point, you know, they get it and they understand the message and it's radical enough that it raises questions. And now you're uh, equipped to have a good conversation. It can turn into an apologetic engagement if they raise objections. But at least you faithfully explain your faith and there's a good proclamation of the gospel that was made. And the ball is kind of in their court at this point. So that, that's not requiring tons of apologetic training, doesn't require an amazing eloquence or lots of study, but just to be to have a basic fluency at explaining, here is what we believe as Christians and here is why it's such a good news. So do you have any plans on... Uh specific things that you're planning on studying here in the next few years? Are you going to continue with the moral responsibility and free will debate, or are you you moving on to different areas to write on? What's that going to look like? 
Yeah, so I've already uh, engaged in quite a bit of a new topic uh, of interest for myself, uh, and it's been the topic of justification by faith, particularly in uh, in debates between Catholics and Protestants. Um, this is a, a question of interest to me. Uh, I was asked, you know, because of my own background, uh, people have asked me, well, you've become a Christian. Uh, why not go back to Catholicism? Uh, why did you end up being a Protestant evangelical? Um, so my answer to that question is that as part of my story, a turning point was the discovery of the gospel, as I've described it, right? The claim that we are not saved by our good works, but by our faith in Jesus. Well, I take that story, that basic story that we're saved by faith in Jesus um, to be Protestant. And this is indeed in contradiction with the, uh, the views of Catholics on justification. So my understanding of what I came to be true, uh, sorry, my understanding of what I came to believe is true is Protestant Christianity. And that explains why I didn't become a Catholic. But to explain intelligently the contrast between the Protestant and Catholic views, I wanted to be a bit better equipped. Uh, and I was able to explain to people, here is what Protestants believe. And I know for a fact that Catholics deny it. So that's sufficient to explain why. But I, I never felt really comfortable about my ability to explain the Catholic view in response to that same question. And so I did quite a bit of study so that I could be doing that well and discovered in the process that there's lots of misunderstandings, even in the literature on the topic. So again, the work of the philosopher, as I see it, is mostly to identify equivocations, like where are people talking past each other, found a bunch of those in the literature on justification by faith. And so I figured there's, there's room here for me to write some things to clarify people's understanding, which is what I've uh, researched for the last few years already. And this is probably going to be another few years before. I, I put things in writing, but I've, I've engaged in that topic of interest. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, did, didn't you go on Parker or Seven Cases show and talk a little bit about it? I haven't watched it yet, but I'm pretty sure I saw something floating around about that. Yes, yes. He, he's the one who got me to uh, to get the, the cat out of the bag, like we've uh, put it. Uh, so the, yes, the, the, the gist of my discoveries and research uh, I shared with uh, Parker on uh, Parker's Ponces. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good place if people are interested. It's a, it's one hour that breaks down the, the gist of my research on this. And it's going to be still a few years before my writings come out on this yeah. with all the documented sources and the careful references. But the, the gist of my argument and discoveries is, is shared there. So uh, if people are interested, that's a, that's a good listen. Awesome. You know, I think your book itself, this one, I think it's fascinating, the range of people you have who are endorsing this. So you've got everybody from Daniel Wallace who... I spent way too much time with Daniel Wallace in undergrad when I was learning Greek and his massive Greek syntax book, which I'm pretty sure there's some crazy story about how like he was in an accident and like had all this memory loss and had to like relearn all the Greek stuff. So he like read his book, his own off, like the book he authored to like relearn it all, which is just wild. Yeah. Um, you've got, I mean, some people, I, I have no idea who these are, but they're obviously um, this, the content of what they're saying is is really good. But you got Sean McDowell, Justin Brierley. I mean, and who is it? Who did the forward? Lee Strobel um, and Gary Habermas yes. and Gregory. I never know how to say his name. Kokul. Kok, I mean, Kukul. Sorry, Greg. Um, I I love his book, Tactics. That was one of my favorite books, honestly, mm -hmm. on thinking through just apologetics. I mean, you've got Peter Williams, Paul Copen. I mean, really, you've got this awesome range from philosophers to New Testament guys to to just like the reliability of the Bible sort of stuff. So I think that 
just is those names speak for themselves to show that the book um, is not just a personal story, but is giving offering actual real assistance to people who are either a curious about the faith or who want to have more resources in defending their own faith. So, Guillaume, thanks thanks for writing this, man. I I love your first book. I love your second book. And now I, I get to wait for your third book on justification whenever that may come out. Um, I'm pumped to see that and read that. So, Brandon, Connor, do you have any closing thoughts or, or questions? No, I think that's it for me. Thanks so much cool. for your time, Guillaume. Yeah, I mean... This is my pleasure wrap up on the the, the various uh, endorsement that you listed i'm incredibly grateful for all those good people and the good words they have on my book uh, this is kind of a, one of the touching aspects of the end of my story is that many of the folks who were i looked as my heroes uh, we, we were very helpful in my discovery of apologetics uh, through the years ended up becoming some of my friends and colleagues and it so it seems very surreal um, so i i'm very touched to see their endorsements in my book it's kind of the the cherry on the cake there yeah, that's awesome. And one thing I, I like about you too is I, I love people who are like kind of straddling the the academic and also just normal sort of world. I think you kind of like people like you inspire me because I mean I feel like I'm doing that myself where I, I have my normal career but I also have my academic interests and everything. So I'm always inspired by you. So it's, it's, I appreciate your work. Very your secret life. This is wonderful. <laughs> that's secret a, identity. That's right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks, Guillaume. This has been great. And for everybody who's been listening and uh, tuning in, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.